Hey everyone, I'm your host Piers Kicks, and welcome back to Metaverse Musings, which is a research-focused podcast that's part of Delphi Digital. We explore the integral components behind what many believe will be the internet's successor, a virtual extension of the natural world where most of us will eventually live, work and play. To some, it represents our next great milestone as a network species, and to others, it is something to fear. With our guests, we discuss the technology, philosophy and culture behind this brave new world. If you're not yet subscribed to the Delphi Research Portal, then I fear for your soul. You're missing out on the most incisive analysis that the digital asset space has to offer. Seriously, check it out. Nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. This podcast features sponsors and any ads are not an endorsement by Delphi Digital and are for informational purposes only. Hi guys, and welcome back to another episode of Metaverse Musings. I'm delighted to introduce you all to Robbie Ferguson of Immutable. The team's been hard at work building some really exciting infrastructure that I'm eager to hear more about. Robbie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. To kick us off, can you give us a summary of your personal background um, and where, uh, as well as sort of where and where you and your brother were before? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think like a lot of people in the crypto space, we have our kind of wacky um, rags to riches and then and then back to rags story from early on crypto. So we got in since you know late 2014. Uh, and in particular, I think we we started getting very interested uh, in Ethereum when it came out in, in 2015. And I mean, uh, this was pure magic to us to have seen the idea of decentralized money and, and ownership and then translating that into generalized logic. I, I know we were kind of obsessed with that concept when it first came out. And so... Uh, but both of us were kind of software engineers at that time. We were, you know, building trading bots. I remember uh, James ended up building a bot which actually automatically clicked on a Bitcoin faucet back then. Um, and it was hmm. like, you know, like it was like 10 bucks da- back then. And, and, and we checked the account and it was worth a couple of grand um, <laughs> back in their peaks. And we, we were happy about that. Um, and and look, we had, we had done a lot of ventures together as well since about 2013. So uh, obviously, we're not only uh, co-founders, but but also brothers. And and you know, we had done a Shopify competitor, a League of Legends betting platform. Um, we were hugely into video games, so um, that was that was always an interest for us. But I think that it was when I suppose we saw NFTs came out in in late 2017 with, you know, things like CryptoPunks that it was immediately obvious to us that this would be the future Um, or or, or at least the kind of next killer use case of the blockchain outside of payments, which was, you know, the value proposition of payments was ownership and the value proposition of NFTs is ownership. So uh, it's still very much within that kind of first primitive value that the blockchain had already proven itself for and so we we thought that this would be the next big thing um and yeah that's that's i suppose how how we got into it and started building our our first game our, our uh, you know etherbots on ethereum um mm-hmm. in december 2017 uh we actually both had full-time jobs at the time i was working at kpmg building an automated cryptocurrency tax analysis software uh which was then licensed to Independent Reserve, and James was the lead engineer at uh, a billion-dollar e-commerce company in Australia. Um, and so we were both doing kind of nine to five, working those jobs, and then coming home and working five to three uh, on this project. So it was, it was quite a rough time. <laughs> nice. So, so yeah, it sounds like you kind of identified some of the building blocks which would be useful to you guys early on. But could you provide some color on the kind of um, broader underlying thesis that motivated you to start Immutable? 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that it always, it, it, it kind of grew as it went along. So I think when we, you know, day one, we're first starting out, I don't think we we're like, we want to build, uh, you know, the digital exchange protocol for, for all kind of digital assets and, and you know, make, make this ownership um, real. I think we certainly knew that there was the vision, but we weren't sure how it would necessarily manifest. Um, but we did know that what we had to do was, was build kind of a, an, a, a proof of concept that people loved and that showed people the potential of this. Um, and so at that time, it was building a game which had entirely on-chain logic and so I think quite early on, we learned both the power and the restrictions of the blockchain. Uh, I remember trolling through GitHub comments uh, on, on literally kind of commentary on Solidity to find, you know, documentation around how to effectively execute the delegate call um, function, which required the, the, the kind of uh, memory between two contracts to, to be aligned Um in terms of the in the call stack, so like it, it really felt like the wild west in terms of the the coding documentation that was available. Um, and in the end, we built you know an application which at the peak gas fee this year would have cost I think over two thousand dollars to run a game. Um, and so it really teaches you like the the kind of the strengths and the disadvantages of the blockchain. And I think at the moment, its most powerful use case is being used as an asset registry or or perhaps to have like some complex financial logic where where the payment values are quite high. Um, but certainly we're not at the point where we can put, you know, the, the general kind of throughput of a, of a video game's logic on there. Sure. Um, I, I think the accent might be a slight giveaway, but could you also give us some information on, on sort of uh, where you guys are based and the team size and composition, sort of the type of people you've brought in and yeah, cause it's not, it's not been too long, but I think you guys have grown pretty quickly now. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I think we've founded, uh, nearly three years ago now and we've grown to 70 full time uh most of those people are in sydney australia as you can tell from the accent unfortunately we're we're not as much on site these days due to due to covid um but we we also have i think 10 to 15 people stationed around the globe um but yeah we're not as decentralized uh in terms of our our corporate structure as you know some of the crypto companies out there mm-hmm could you um could you give us an overview of Gods Unchained and kind of how the success of that game has informed what you're doing now? Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, Gods Unchained was for us the magic application to build. Uh, once we had raised our seed round, we we always knew that the magic of being able to play Magic the Gathering when you're a kid and being able to trade these items uh, could for the first time be combined with the convenience and the upgradability of a game as a service like Hearthstone. Uh, we, we thought that was insanely cool. We thought that this thing would be, you know, uh, a, a, a multi-billion dollar game uh, and, and, and it could kind of redefine and, and showcase and be the Trojan horse almost for how NFTs could redefine gaming. Uh, and so that was the really obvious kind of first place for us to start. Um, and so, you know, we, we built and we still are building this game and, um, it's it's essentially one of our, our our primary assets. You know, our goal is to make it one of the the top three trading card games in the world. Eventually, the top trading card game in the world. Um, we've brought on you know Chris Clay, who was the former game director of Magic the Gathering Arena, um, and and yeah, I I think that the kind of potential of, of this kind of game is huge. Um, there's there's still a lot to go in terms of making it frictionlessness 
uh, sorry, frictionless for mainstream users, but that's exactly why we're building Immutable X. And without that firsthand experience of the difficulties of building a game for mainstream customers, I don't think we would have had the product insights that, that led us to building that either. Mm, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, Immutable X is definitely definitely the part I'm most excited about. Um, I guess for those listening that are, that are as yet unfamiliar with it, because it was only sort of recently announced, could you give us a quick overview of it? Yeah, absolutely. So Immutable X is a completely non-custodial protocol for, for trading items on Ethereum. Uh, it costs you absolutely zero gas costs to either trade an item or for developers to mint an item, which right now would cost you $10 to mint an NFT minimum. Uh, so it was completely infeasible for us to run the next season of God's Unchained without this technology. Uh, and it also has the exact same security as the Ethereum main chain. So uh, you could put a billion dollar economy on this thing and there is no way that it is game theoretically advantageous for someone to say, launch a 51% attack against the network. So uh, it's, it's basically powered by zero knowledge proofs, uh, which has been all the rage theoretically on Ethereum uh, so far. I mean, I think Vital uh, Vitalik tweeted a couple of weeks ago that, you know, uh, ZK rollups are kind of the, the, the future of, of Ethereum in the medium term. Uh, and so we're really excited to bring one of the first products to market for NFTs uh, based on this technology. Um, obviously partnered with with Starkware, who's providing the the proof constructs that are enabling these uh, off-chain uh, batching of transactions. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, sounds sounds super exciting. O on paper, it really does, does seem like a kind of holy grail for the NFT space. Um, what are some of the key enabling factors that uh, both sort of allowed you to conceptualize uh, this and then also execute it? Yeah, it's a great question. So when we first started out, we... We knew scalability was important. It certainly wasn't as important as it was this year. I mean, gas costs weren't, you know, a um, hundred quay. But uh, we knew we wanted a solution and everything we saw didn't really hit our needs. We wanted scalability. We didn't want to compromise on users' custody because fundamentally we were, you know, blockchain maximalists. We were doing this for a reason, which was we wanted users to be able to own their assets. Uh, we didn't want developers to be able to come take it away from them. And that meant, you know, a centralized exchange wouldn't do the job for us. Uh, a side chain where there are kind of private keys at, at custody risk. So there's, there's pretty low security wouldn't do it for us. Uh, we also were pretty keen for it to be on Ethereum. Uh, we, we had kind of loved Ethereum from day one. And I think the magic of the developer support and the community support on that blockchain uh, made it a really good home for both Gods Unchained uh, and this exchange because we kind of want... Uh, it to live on a place where there's already that that existing community. We also wanted it to have very high security. So whatever the security the Ethereum main chain brings, we also wanted to have benefiting this, this kind of asset trading. And finally, we wanted it to be frictionless for users. So uh, our listed demands are quite high and magic solutions, which appeared to solve it like state channels, never really proved to be uh, feasible technologically. Uh, and, and, and so that, that was our conceptualization. And I think it was a little bit of serendipity that it was actually, I think, Matt Wang from, from Paradigm who introduced us to Starkware at the start of this year. Uh, and, and we began to see the power that, uh, you know, ZK rollups, particularly Stark-based ZK rollups, which enable liquidity for NFTs, that that would be the, the first killer solution to the scalability trilemma.
Yeah, super interesting. You've also spoken about the importance of kind of um, abstracting away this blockchain component for users. Um, what are some of the key areas of focus for enabling this? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's multiple areas for this. The first is if you're just a regular person playing a game, we don't want you to have to think about the fact that it's on a blockchain. And maybe this doesn't come this year. Maybe this is, you know, uh, a little while from now. But ultimately, the value proposition of having an asset be on the blockchain should be so obvious that in the same way when you go to a website and you see the little encryption lock at the top left in the URL bar, you know that it's uh, secure, but you don't need to understand how HTTPS works under the hood. If you go to a game, you can understand that these assets are are kind of, you know, immutable assets. They're, they're assets that are truly owned custodially by you and you have certain rights and, and kind of governance properties over them. But you don't need to understand, you know, how does the blockchain work? What what, what kind of technology is underpinning this? What's my, you know, uh, wallet address, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so that's really the dream. And for developers, uh, it's really important for us as well, which is, this should be as simple to integrate into your game as it is integrating you know, existing SDKs or plugins. It should really be a plug and play API where you can set, these are the restraints and limitations I wanna place on myself. We can set sensible defaults. Uh, and and you know, I think it'll take a little while to get there, uh, particularly as we balance kind of the complexity of that integration with the, the components of decentralization that we wanna impose on ourselves, but I, we, we will get there. Mm. I'm, I'm curious, um, when you say a little while, what kind of time horizon do you anticipate? I think, you know, within the next two years, we're going to start having uh, this become used by mainstream applications. And, you know, the first big application integrations can just be done in a high touch manner um, to ensure kind of it being fully decentralized. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's too far away. Um, but I, I also like to be realistic with my with my timeframes, and, and we're here to disrupt, you know, a hundred and fifty billion dollar video gaming industry and a, a multi trillion dollar digital asset industry. And so I, you know, I, I, yeah. I think we're already being quite ambitious. Yeah, quite right. Um, yeah. So, so what would you say are some of the sort of unique or important considerations when engaging with blockchain gaming? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Uh, I think it's a big question. So uh, there's a few interesting things. The, the first one I think is a lot of people talk about how blockchain gaming opens up kind of new paradigms of game design. And I think this is true. I also think that the most powerful applications will be as simple as taking the existing economies and making them real. So in the same way that when you have centralized money, Bitcoin or Ethereum is a revolutionary uh, replacement of that. And it also involves some changes. So not, not only do you have custody of your, your money, but like the very fact that you have scarce supply and, and, and fixed kind of supply creation schedules is, is different to the, to the nature of, you know, uh, modern monetary theory. And the value propositions of those two currencies are then fundamentally different. And so I think in the same way, you can directly create an analogy between, say, a skin marketplace for Counter-Strike Go and that skin marketplace if it was on a, a blockchain marketplace, which is you instantly have a bunch of properties that uh, radically increase the value. They also slightly change the requirements. 
So suddenly, if you're a game designer, you have to be considerate of the fact that these things are scarce. Uh, your decisions have impacts upon the secondary economy. And you also have new axes of values, things like provenance. Uh, and, and so I, I would say that, like, that that's the most kind of easy to digest value proposition of, of blockchain gaming. Um, if that answers the first part of your question, then I think the second thing is it, it opens up brand new verticals of gaming, which uh, you know is simply not possible under the current centralized paradigm, which is, you know, number one, you have financial markets emerging. Anytime you have any kind of tradable marketplace with sufficient liquidity, you essentially get things like, uh, you know, secondary financial markets or, or derivative financial markets, which are typically an order of magnitude bigger than the primary assets. So I very much imagine we're going to see ETFs or long options or short options emerging around certain different classes of digital assets. Maybe you're going, uh, if we're talking art, people will be creating indices or, or ETFs of kind of renaissance digital art. Or, or maybe you can go like long 2018 Fortnite skins and short 2021 because <laughs> they, they launched the art. <laughs> so like the, the, there is this brand new world that immediately opens up as soon as you create a liquid marketplace for anything. So I think that's kind of exciting. Um, mm, and then, you know, you have people doing brand new, new game designs. I think, um, you know, our, our, our place is what we're trying to do is just enable anyone to do anything. And right now you can't do, do much because even if you want to mint an item to say reward a, a person for playing your game, that's costing you an insane amount of money as a developer, an untenable amount of money. Mm. You, um, you touched upon the art side there for a moment. Uh, and it's kind of clear that you guys have a, have a sort of game bias, at least, at least, um, you know, for now. Um, but what are some of the, what, what, are, what are some other categories that you think could ultimately flourish in the, in the sort of NFT space? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the first categories to flourish will be ones where the value of the good inheres in the digital custody of the token. So it doesn't require a bridge or a link to physical or legal infrastructure, say to real estate title, to art title, etc. And And that's because as soon as you're linking the value of a digital token to something which exists within the real world, within the real legal system or kind of regulatory system, you're, you're vastly diminishing the value of the blockchain because the custody doesn't matter if you still have to go through a legal dispute or, or physical custody is, is like part of the value proposition of that token. So what, what does that actually mean? It means that I think the first kind of classes of NFTs, which will become majorly successful, are going to be video game items. They're going to be digital collectibles, digital art, like we see on, you know, uh, Azora with with super rare, you know these kinds of um, sites which feature art from originators, and and they're even sometimes IPOing these goods into existence. Uh, I think we'll see it with with web domains, you know things like unstoppable domains. I think we'll see it with investment and financial products, which of course we already see massive product market fit with with Bitcoin itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but no, I think no. so. Go ahead. I was going to say beyond that, I, over the next decade, I very much see these NFTs subsuming a whole bunch of unique asset uh, kind of verticals, whether that's music, physical art, real estate, 
unique commodities like diamonds, IP rights, licensing rights. I mean, all of these industries uh, are eventually going to be on whatever solution offers people the best liquidity, the lowest fees, uh, the, the best kind of value for, for traders. Um, and I think it's ultimately going to end up on, on blockchains as NFTs. Yeah, no, couldn't agree more, especially with that sort of chronology. I definitely think, um, you know, for, for obvious reasons that the more sort of natively digital stuff um, makes a lot more sense in the interim. I'm definitely really excited about the longer term sort of prospects of the physical stuff too, but um, I, I don't quite see it yet. Um, seems to be a little, sort of a lot more friction involved and I, don't yeah. know, I think the path to get there is uh, going to be a lot, a lot longer. Um Beyond uh, the obvious kind of UX issues, what do you think are some of the most valid criticisms of, um, I guess, sort of blockchain games or NFTs in their current form? Definitely their economies. So uh, most game designers have not yet figured out how do you create a sustainable economy that mixes old game design concepts. So concepts such as giving users progression and rewards for playing your game uh, with new concepts, which is, those rewards are now openly tradable between anyone. Uh, and, and that actually violates a bunch of original game design tenets that, that people kind of hold. So an example I can give you is Diablo 3. So famously, Diablo 3 had its auction house where you could trade items for real value. And the problem that they found is the normal progression that users experienced, which meant they were motivated to keep going through the game, was completely removed when players could just buy items from the end of that time period. Uh, and, and they found that basically by creating this market, uh, and, and, and you know, there, were, there were a bunch of other stuff such as like botting and the economy crashed, but like fundamentally that was one of their problems, which is people weren't retained because they no longer had to go through you know, uh, the, the kind of rat race or the, or the mouse wheel of, of earning these items. Uh, and this is a problem. People have to learn how to design around this. Uh, it's, it's something we've thought about very deeply in God's Unchained, uh, because what we want to do is we want to create an economy that is, is sustainable, that has the same kind of properties as, or the same value proposition as a bit Bitcoin or Ethereum, because it's, it's kind of hard money. It has that scarcity. Um, and I think we've made, we've made some good progress there. So I think, but I think that that's, that's clearly the number one criticism, which is like the, the kind of soundness of the economies. Mm, yeah, it makes sense. Um, do you think that any of these sort of uh, competing non-fungible token standards such as DGIDs on EOS or uh, Flow's sort of NFTs really sort of stand a chance? Yeah, also a really uh, interesting question. Um, so look, I, I don't really mind the, the token standards. I think that that is, um, you know, if we're talking about like ERC-1177 or 1155 versus ERC-721 or... Um, ERC-20s even, like, uh, personally, I really like ERC-721s uh, because I, they give you that provenance. I think that's really cool. I think it's a massive access of value that that offers, you know, just phenomenal kind of distribution potential for games because suddenly you have this entire segment of the idea of memorabilia from, say, you know, sports and industries, merchandising, and you can apply that to digital assets. That's that's phenomenal and that's unprecedented. Um and obviously, the problem is the more unique an asset is, the more expensive it is to trade. So you can trade an arbitrary number of ERC-20s for the same cost. It costs you the same amount to trade a million as it does to trade one. Uh, with ERC-721s, it scales 
linearly and proportionately, it costs a million times more to trade a million NFTs, except on Immutable X, where they both cost zero. So that, I think that's why we think that's cool. Um, in terms of like competing ecosystems, look, I, I really think that at the moment, Ethereum is proving out the protocol thesis, $18 billion in, in DeFi value accumulated to the to the chain this year. We are seeing massive community interest and, and development interest. They've won the hearts and minds of many, many developers. I think it's a significant hurdle to overcome. It's not one we wanted to overcome. Uh, we wanted to build a solution that the people already wanted uh, rather than trying to kind of compete with Ethereum's that we could you know, have this VC-backed chain um, that that could accrue some potentially very high value to the company. We, you know, we, we would rather build something on on kind of an ecosystem that that was already built and that had, you know, supported us in the past as well. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Have you, uh, are there any um, of the other competing sort of ecosystems that you've looked at that, that do have some merit in your mind or um, have you guys just been much more focused on, on the Ethereum side of things? Look, there's definitely cool ideas. And of course, blockchains work. You can make a competing blockchain and you can make it more scalable by trading away decentralization. But at the end of the day, that's the biggest innovation I've seen from competing blockchains is they're tweaking with some of the parameters to make it have a higher TPS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, <clears throat> it makes sense. Yeah. Um, what role do you see uh, NFTs then ultimately playing across sort of interact uh, inter- interactive technologies more broadly? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, could you clarify what you mean by interactive technologies? So anything from um, you know s- sort of interactive streams. Um, I mean, games would fall into that bucket. Um, sort of social technology, streaming platforms. Um, yeah, how they could be integrated into more kind of just sort of web applications. Yeah, absolutely. So I think number one awesome idea is when you combine provenance, you can suddenly have basically digital merchandise created on the fly that has meaningful context for. Uh, streamers. So I'm playing a game, I win a match with a particular gun or a skin, I can give that skin out or raffle it off to the audience who's currently viewing me. And every time they use that, they can prove that that was used in that particular match. I think that's really cool. It's like someone signing a baseball bat or a tennis racket after a game and and chucking into the crowd. Uh, And it also offers like brand new revenue for these streamers that accrues directly to them. So it's really good for original content creators. I think they're yeah, all no. Yeah, sorry, you go. Yeah, I was just going to say, I definitely think that that aspect of it is really, really exciting. And one of the ones that I think makes a lot of sense um, is exactly that custom streamer memorabilia. Um, uh, yeah, I love that idea. I think that analogy you just used of uh, signing a record and chucking it into the crowd's a great one. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, this is like, I, I can see that happening in a virtual reality world in, in a few years. I mean, this is the future of, of entertainment and probably people's lives is self-actualizing and, and living social and economically meaningful lives in a digital world. Mm, the only uh, way that digital world isn't owned by Facebook is if there's an open protocol powered by blockchain, which is scalable, that allows you know billions of trades to occur. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you, you touched upon it in your recent YPO interview, but um, yeah, I, I guess I'm curious to what extent you kind of subscribe to this idea of a metaverse. You, you mentioned that you know within 30 or 40 years, you think most young people will be spending the majority of their time in VR. Yeah, 
Good question. So I'll I'll say the less hype answer first, which is <laughs> I don't yet think people have worked out the economics or incentives for interoperability, uh, which is people talk about one of the coolest use cases of NFTs is I can take the assets from one game and use it in another ecosystem. Yeah, you can. And that's really cool. But I don't think people have really created how why people would have an incentive to do that if if the value just accrues to the underlying assets right now. You know, maybe there's an aggregator which which can take some fees or or something like that, but uh, I, I haven't seen kind of strong proof that there's a there's a business model for this yet. Uh, that being said, the metaverse I think certainly will happen. Uh, there, there's just you know, even if it takes 30 or 40 or 50 years until we have photorealistic virtual reality and, and kind of sensory input, people will end up living their lives in a digital environment, is, is my belief, you know, for, for better or for worse. Uh, and I think that if that happens, we can't let the, the digital assets in those worlds, which will be vastly economically meaningful, I mean, they'll they'll dwarf the, the value of, of normal physical assets. We can't let that be owned by a single company. There needs to be a standard that empowers people to have custody and scarcity over them in the same way you do literal atoms, which you, which you purchase and can keep on your person. Mm, yeah. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Definitely really exciting um, to sort of, you know, consider the direction of travel of all, all the blockchain components, I guess, uh, Ethereum in particular uh, in, in that context. Um, what, what's something then, about the metaverse you think perhaps unique or, or non-obvious that most are sort of unaware of or would probably disagree with? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting question. So um, I personally think that the, I, I think probably what I said earlier, which is just like, I, I, I'm not necessarily sure that this interoperability is going to be something which is commercially incentivized at first. I think you'll see, you know, IP crossovers in the same way you do see Fortnite partnering with, you know, NRL teams or John Wick. Um, but if if you owned the original kind of items, I can't see a reason right now why, why people would create like valuable environments for those items if there was no other financial kind of offering for them. So, so maybe there's something we have to work out here. It's just like when you create experiences, which, which accrue demand to the underlying assets, you share in some of that value. Or maybe there's some other way to, to kind of monetize those things. Yeah, but with something even just as simple as, um, you know, a, a fee structure, if it's transacted in or around your environment, then you're collecting a fee. Not, you know, obviously in perpetuity on secondary sales and stuff like that. Would that not be uh, one way to sort of kickstart those financial incentives for the sort of um, experience or platform operator to, to still build them? Yeah, absolutely. Um and I think we're we're even toying with with something similar with immutable X. Okay, interesting. Um, what's uh, one thing that's become clear to you since you embarked on your kind of crypto journey that you wish you'd known before? Yeah, uh, probably that that Bitcoin slash Ethereum uh, is going to take over as as the future of money is my glib response here. Um, but my my serious response would be that I think. 
the wool has been pulled over consumers' eyes with the types of rights that they can expect with digital assets. There is, for no good reason, a fundamental difference between what a user can expect if they buy something in a digital version versus a physical version. Uh, and we've seen lawsuits and, and, and court cases which address this. I mean, I, I forget which celebrity, but one of them sued iTunes for saying, well, why can't I pass on my iTunes collections? This is back when he purchased songs instead of streaming them to my kids when I die. Um, and it raises the fundamental idea, which is like, why, why doesn't this apply to, to digital goods? Um, and, and my opinion, especially in gaming, is that it's just because it's the most profitable model currently for, for game developers is to keep this system entirely rent-seeking, entirely centralized and, and kind of uh, removing the ability for people to have secondary markets. And, and you see this actually with, I think a really close analogy is if you look at the secondary car markets in, in countries, they're like very tightly regulated. They often prohibit cars being imported from the secondary market from other countries because they want to protect the secondary value of, of cars. Um, they, they don't want kind of primary a- asset car sales to be undercut by the fact that there's a, a peer-to-peer marketplace. And so it's it's not the first time that this lack of incentive alignment has existed, um, but it is, you know, spanning a, a massive, massive industry with very few counterexamples um, for it existing. Mm, yeah, and I mean, I, I guess it's so much more defensible as well, given that it is all sort of digital and they just entirely dictate the rules of engagement. Um, perhaps to, to a much more significant degree than perhaps the uh, sort of car markets would. Um, so yeah, I agree. It's, it's definitely, definitely some challenges there ahead. Um, despite all that, what do you kind of see as the, the sort of primary path to adoption for NFTs and I guess ultimately this idea of a metaverse? Oh, look, definitely games. I, that's why we're in the gaming business is we think it's the Trojan horse for blockchain and decentralized asset ownership for the the world, which is it's so easy to understand the value proposition of your Fortnite skin is now tradable and only a thousand can exist. So you have guarantees over its future value. And also if you win a cool match with it or do something epic with it, it can remember that. Like that is a fundamental value step function jump, uh, which people can can kind of really viscerally understand. Um, and also the audience is already completely digital native. They're gamers. So it's it's much easier to pitch that to them than it is, say, NFTs for for diamonds for retail investors or or, or whatever that clientele is. Mm. Yeah, I, I um I, I like the idea of skins and items being able to remember things. There's often the example given um, of you know if someone uses a sword to kill a new boss or whatever, then it will you know uh, take on part of their name or something like that. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, are there any other sort of angles of attack for that idea that you that you that you've thought about? I, I was I was thinking just then when you said that it would be really neat if um let's say you're a streamer and you get some crazy clip or perform some crazy crazy kill um that it would actually sort of like embed the relevant Twitch clip uh, into that skin so you'd have like yeah, a pool of fame that I belongs that. to it. Exactly. So you can have the you know the embedded video file and and you know maybe it echoes the screams of your opponent when you when you kill someone. Like, <laughs> Um, there's, now we're talking. There's, yeah, heaps of cool things you can do, or or maybe like even for RPG games or MMORPGs, the items can pick up lore along the way. Mm. So it can be like, well, you know, this particular sword did this and it was used in this, and it can kind of collect a, a literal legacy as it goes along. So I think there's 
there's really cool things and there's things you can do which which you know interact with the actual game design which i just think is like phenomenal that's a that's an entire axis of game design that hasn't been possible before mm, for sure you um you mentioned that you feel like a lot of sort of the economics and incentives don't quite um you know work out for those that are entrenched the incumbents yet but um what new business models from i guess uh our side of the fence do you see being unlocked that you think will will perhaps eventually dominate yeah in, in gaming or more broadly um in gaming to begin with and then more broadly would also be interesting so i think number one is we see a lot of indie developers being able to successfully run very quite quite sizable essentially kickstarters where people can become co-owners of that game and you almost form a cooperative and i think it has really amazing benefits to retention it has really amazing benefits to community engagement and you almost see parts of these you know communities taking on really active roles and coming up with memes marketing ideas game design ideas and of course you can take it to the nth degree where you see games like sandbox or axie do their their governance tokens and so i mean that's a, that's a completely new business model which is you're effectively um allowing the community to own the the controls of, of this machine and, and you know may, maybe even choose whether to retain the the talent of the original development team um and so it, it definitely is this this new kind of crypto efficient market world um utopia where you know, that, that's the theory where you can have kind of very efficient market operations where people are in, allocating capital to to things they think they can improve um but it also means that those those consumers are those customers are better retained customers that they're, they're lifelong evangelists rather than just being an ordinary customer so i i i think that's pretty cool um i also think we're going to have new kind of secondary streams of revenue or business models for streamers or other participants in, in the game i mean even with gods unchained i can say for reference the amount of third-party websites and development that we have built for that is you know punching way above the game's kind of sizes you know easily millions of dollars of third-party dev work that's been going on and the only reason that exists is because we have trustless abilities for those people to earn money based off the the kind of traffic they send to the game so we we have i you know that there are websites that have made multi six figures off of building value for our ecosystem i think that's really awesome wow. and i think that, that that actually permeates through every part of the game so one of the things i found fascinating is when i first met kind of chris clay the he was, he was obviously a magic the gathering massive fan and he told me about how when he was younger what he'd do is he would build up decks which were very competitive in magic the gathering and he would use them in a popular tournament but they would contain cards that were really overlooked really low value and he would buy massive copies of that card they would then become popular and because he'd showcase how powerful they could be in certain combinations in that tournament and their the value on the second market would, would skyrocket and he'd make you know 500 bucks a thousand bucks selling the cards he had stockpiled that is now something that can happen in online gaming so people are going to develop meta not just around what is the most dominant way to assign your deck but how does that interact with the access of price or relative perceived value for the market people are going to be looking for these meta strategies that are that are you know overlooked or undervalued and i think that's really awesome to be able to be providing people automatic value for building kind of 
uh, valuable information out of out of the ecosystem like that. Absolutely, no, that's a that's a really cool angle. Um, sorry, oh, you, you're going to make... the final obvious one is if you're a streamer, you can actually sell the goods you're using. So rather than just linking mm. to a site, you can sell the very deck you're using. You can auction it off in real time. So like the amount of primary revenue we're going to be providing to to creators, especially small creators, is massively higher than currently what's offering. I mean, essentially the streaming industry operates on the patronage model. People donate. Uh, for whatever the status or it, it's, you know, it's completely uh, amateur, this, this monetization system and, and, and way below what they deserve and, and what kind of value they're accruing to these games. So I'm, ex- I'm really excited about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, <clears throat> having seen the crazy success of already across various games where they do create, you know, streamer themed uh, in-game items, be it a gun charm or whatever. I mean, those sell like crazy. I mean, obviously exactly. there's, yeah, they're just infinite copies of them. But um, yeah, I definitely think the demand's already evident for that kind of stuff. Um, and it'll also be interesting to see what that does to the sort of streaming industry more broadly, uh, whether that enables, you know, a new sort of wave, a, a new influx of streamers, um, of people that can afford to partake in it, because those direct monetization mechanisms apply to everyone right through the stack, even if you got, you know, 10 followers or whatever. So um, yeah, I definitely think it could be super interesting to see. Um, you, you were going to go on to say uh, also new business models more broadly that you thought might be interesting beyond gaming. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, look, I won't go too into the, deep into the DeFi space, but I think that area is, is really, really cool. And I think that we're going to see very quickly a shift where the, the value and, and the fees offered becomes lower. Like essentially, you know, financial operators will, will move to whatever platform or market offers them the best financial value. And that, and that includes the kind of risk they're taking on, including technological and existential risk. They'll become the critical point where it just becomes better to use these systems, and as, especially for financial trades. Um, and I, I'm really excited about things like, you know, delegated credit and the ability to have open ecosystems of, of loans and banks on, on the blockchain. And so I think that that is, yeah, that, that's basically this, this massive, massive space um, with a lot of investment into the primitives this year in terms of now anyone can build uh, applications based on that. So I think we're going to see some some really exciting uh, stuff come out of that in the next couple of years. Mm, absolutely. <clears throat> um, in, in terms of kind of investable surface area, what do you find the most compelling and, uh, and why? Yeah, so I uh, I like technology and I like kind of interactive entertainment. I'm you know, a gamer, I'm a millennial, I understand that kind of content the most. And I think that there's been really interesting innovations in ways people uh, create digital value and, and social value uh, in, in recent times. Um, uh, I, I really, so there's a, a kind of uh, thesis of mine, and, and I think it's shared by a few people, which is I really like the idea that you can take traditionally very locked up or, or very exclusive investments and, and kind of democratize them. Uh, so there's a company I know, Rally Road, and a few crypto companies doing this with, with fractional asset ownership, which is like the idea of being able to take this super valuable item and then allow a hundred or a thousand people to all own a piece of it, I think is a is a really cool idea. And I think it kind of redefines the idea of uh, this, this status of ownership and what it means to have that. Um, in terms of other surface areas, I, I really like the idea of, of 
getting into kind of uh, massive retraining. Um, you know, there's there's a few good companies in the space. I know, you know, Lambda School is, is one of the um, more interesting companies, which is offering this highly scalable way to, to kind of do retraining of people. But there's, I, I'm, I'm quite interested in, in things which focus on realigning incentives. I, I think basically at the moment we have this crazy problem where if, if the government were run like a business, it'd be a very good investment for them to to make a, a massive investment in, in education. But for whatever reason, the short-term incentives of the political election cycle or, uh, you know, the, the politics of um, free education, this bet or this investment, which is which is easily uh, a rational one, hasn't been made. And so there's, um, there's a really interesting company here uh, I invested in, which is actually paying for this via future tax revenue. Um, so I, I think there's some cool stuff there. And then just more broadly in interactive t- entertainment, I love the idea of uh, allowing consumers to have more hands-on engagement with um, you know, digital entertainment, whether it's a company like Genvid Tech, which allows people to essentially have you know, Twitch plays um, for, for any kind of video game. I mean, I, I, this stuff, these are really powerful protocols that I think are going to open up a bunch of new um, entertainment experiences for young people. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's all very exciting. Um, what the guys at Genvid are doing is, is super cool. Um, I'm also I, I'm curious. No one seems to have checked it out as much yet. It might be because it's still pretty early on. But um, uh, this idea of the sort of real time volumetric um, imaging stuff have you encountered that at all? I don't think I have, unless you mean like creating 3D images from from a scan from your phone, say. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of uh, how it exists in a pretty rudimentary form, but a bunch of people, are, well, a bunch of people, um, there's one company in particular called Condensed Reality that's um, that they're, they're looking at doing, um, basically starting off super small, like uh, being able to do a, a real-time sort of stream of a boxing match, for example. Um, but yeah, using the similar sort of scanning technology to actually build um, those images in a sort of volumetric manner, such that they can be, you know, manipulated however you want. You can sort of display it in AR or, or on, on your sort of coffee right, table. Right, um, expand it um, uh, or, or make it smaller. And then um, where it gets super cool, some of this volumetric stuff as well is uh, I was thinking around sort of esports, um, whereby imagine you literally had, you know, your mates over and on your coffee table, you had bird's eye view of the map and you could see everyone playing in real time. And again, you can zoom into whichever parts you want. That's a really cool element of interactivity, which is, you know, much further down the road, um, but super interesting. Yeah, for sure. I, I would love that personally. Yeah, we'll see. Um, what is uh, your favorite video game ever? Oh, I have a few. Uh, Oblivion was probably the most amazed I've ever been by playing a game. Um, definitely more so than, than Skyrim. I think for its time, it was really redefining the kind of single-player RPG genre, both in graphics and just the the sheer detail of stuff you could do. Um, I've probably got to say RuneScape, though. Because of the economy, yes, uh, it was it was my favorite correct thing. answer. <laughs> yeah. um, my my favorite thing was just like you know trying to arbitrage the exchange. I actually ended up getting banned um, because I used to play in my brother's account, and one one day I I took his valuable items into the wilderness, 
and I I lost them to a a PKR a player, <laughs> um, and he had like you know thirty million gold worth of stuff. Like he had like dragon plate body. Like what everything. were you thinking? I know, I know, and I felt so bad that I uh, bought gold online to nice. to repay him and to buy his items back. Um, and the next day I was banned, and that you know. <laughs> kind of formed my hatred of of just people who could act with impunity over you know thousands literally thousands of hours of, of your life yeah i'm surprised you got banned though if the real world trading i mean plenty of it goes on i mean in the recent um the most recent stats they put out i can't remember which mod it was but um they estimated that between 40 to 50 percent of the of the of the player population were buying um rs gold on on any given month so wow. I think well, they've yeah, allowed it now. You can just do it. You can buy yeah. it on RuneScape. Yeah, but that's all. Uh, yeah, that sucks. Um, doing it through, through that mechanism, and they've also got all the bond stuff. These weird ways to try yeah. and monetize it. But I mean, the the gold farmers and the gold sellers are still in full swing. Um, it's pretty crazy. There's um. There's a guy called uh, Sir Pugger, if you're familiar with him, a YouTuber who's kind of like an investigative YouTuber, and he looks into various aspects of the game. So um, be it kind of, you know, the Venezuelan um, power leveling gold farming operations or people um, playing on accounts via sort of, you know, um, team viewer to sort of evade detection from logging in from different places with different Mac addresses and stuff to complete, um, you know, earn fire capes and whatever the high end versions of them are. Um, But he was looking into uh, the jewel arena and he basically put together some stats on how much money was actually flowing through it uh, on like a given on a given month or whatever. And it was it was unbelievable. I I can't produce the stat off the top of my head, but uh, it's, it's worth checking out. Yeah, absolutely. What what was his name again? Uh, Sir Pugger. Um, he makes some awesome, awesome videos. Um, but be warned, definitely, definitely set aside an hour or two on the weekend for it because yeah, they. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's a bottom. My, my favorite so. thing was was the Falador massacre when that happened. I thought that was so oh, yeah. funny. My my friend was a mod at the time, and he was <laughs> trying to tell people to go back to their banks and bank everything. I, I just thought that was amazing. Yeah, that was legendary. Um, I've logged in for the for the Fally Massacre moment of silence a couple a couple of years, but um, right. <laughs> it's hard to make it happen consistently. Um, yeah. Um, uh, aside from losing all your brother's gear in the wilderness, uh, what is the most impactful digital experience you've ever had? Yeah. Well, um, there's definitely a lot of stuff in gaming, but I, I look. I probably have to say interacting with ethereum for the first time i remember like literally using the mist client uh really having no idea what i was doing um and i think i played with you know adapt maybe it was an ether roll or something like that and that to me was magical um like i i just really liked the idea i think i mean i i i'm not a gambler but Ether all I think exemplifies the power of the blockchain in a very, very simple way, which is I can create a game where I flip a coin. If it's, you know, tails, you win double. If it's heads, you lose. And no one controls the odds of that game and it'll exist forever in perpetuity. And that that before was completely impossible. Um, and now it, it, it exemplifies the complete potential of uh, decentralized, uh, g- generalized logic. So that, that was, I think, very, very powerful for me. 
Absolutely, that's super cool. Um, I I always found those uh, <clears throat> odds games super interesting around, um, you, you know, around some of these sort of. Uh, th- there was the other one um, called Prime Dice. Have you ever encountered that as as a no. website? Um, yeah, it was, it was really interesting that one. A couple of years ago, I think there was a guy called um, Bumblebee, uh, and he found an exploit on it and managed to drain god knows how many bitcoin before finally getting kicked off and i mean obviously they had no no recourse there was no way to undo that um and he made it made a killing off it before they patched it which was super interesting um uh finally kind of out of all of the books you've read which one has resonated with you the most Mm. um there's a bunch of really boring books I can probably say here, boring business books. I, I mostly read nonfiction. I'm, I'm going to say Three Body Problem. Or oh, actually, yes. no, I'm going to replace Three Body Problem with no. um, The Player of Games. Okay. you've ever read that in the yeah. Contra series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of Ian Banks. Yeah. Um, yeah that, I think that, yeah, that resonated just because my, my deep belief is humanity like we're we're just in a temporary uh stopover which is this stopover where things are scarce and we have to compete with each other um i think ultimately the vision for humanity as long as we don't die along the way or we aren't killed off by ai is we really should live in a post-scarcity utopia Mm. um you know where, where people live forever we don't suffer from disease we we can have whatever resources we want and that was for the first time that i ever read a, a description of a utopia that wasn't secretly dystopian that was a genuine healthy good utopia and mm. um i found that quite inspirational that's really interesting yeah I, i've always found that um you know in in the quest for kind of post-scarcity civilization um you know, it did occur to me that like the manufacturing of digital scarcity is is seems like a very necessary st- uh, stepping stone in getting there, which I th- thought was pretty interesting. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah. Um, it's a funny paradox. It's, it's it's um it's interesting that uh, both books that sprung to mind were were sci-fi. When you mentioned you're normally a non non-fiction guy, but um mm. yeah. Well, when um, I'm in fiction, it's always sci-fi. Yeah, quite right. I'm a I'm a big sci-fi fan. Um. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that's all on, on the sort of main questions. Uh, are, are there any kind of uh, closing comments on the NFT or metaverse or immutable space that you wanted to make? Um, yeah, probably just if, if you know, people are listening to this and they're interested about what they're doing, whether they're building a project or they're running a marketplace or they're just thinking about it, please reach out to us. Uh, you know, we're here to build the best possible product for the community to help scale, you know, real digital asset trading um, and enable these new worlds. So yeah, come come hit us up and, and we'd love to chat and see how we can help you. Awesome. And, and where's the best place for people to find you guys? So at Twitter, uh, Immutable, uh, or you can even email me directly at Robbie at Immutable.com. Awesome. I, I'm curious, actually, I meant to ask, um, that domain, was that taken when you guys looked for it? Did you need to buy it, it off someone? Because it's, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> Funnily enough, I, I shouldn't say this, but if you Google that domain, there's some bizarre video put up by the domain brokers where they discuss the transaction we bought it off them with. It's like, a, <laughs> it's like a, they have a podcast with like five domain brokers all sitting around discussing it. It was, you know, a, a relatively expensive domain. Uh, and it was like five months of negotiation where <laughs> our CTO was pretending to be 
five different people all with different levels of budget authorization in order to try and negotiate a good <laughs> price out of these guys. Um, so that was definitely one of the more surreal experiences, but uh, I think we're, we're happy with, we, we, we love the name. So we're happy. That's brilliant. Yeah, no, I love, love the name and love the branding. It's, it's, it's all great. Um, Robbie, thank you very much for taking the time. Really appreciate you coming on. That was a really interesting discussion. Thank you very much.